thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. And with Dave Ansel. Hi, Dave. Hi there. And I'm Chris Smith. Now, coming up, plants that don't need sunlight to grow. How on earth do they do that and how does this help them to avoid being eaten? We'll find out. Also, with the Copenhagen Climate Summit, which is lurking just around the corner, how scientists have developed a new way to generate electricity just by mixing salty and fresh water together. And also, how scientists have discovered a new way to track down the genes in our cells that bugs exploit to make us unwell. And that could lead to a host of new treatments. And we'll find out how in just a second. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, it's our science question and answer show. So we've got an inbox bulging with your questions, including how does lead stop radiation? What is it that makes a steak tough and chewy? And this from Dave in London. I would like to know what would happen to the Earth if a meteor hit the moon and destroyed it? The answers to all those questions are coming up. And if you'd like to ask us anything, grab a pen and a piece of paper and we'll be telling you in just a moment how to get in touch with us. Dave. Thanks, Helen. And for Kitchen Sciences Week, I'll show you a neat experiment to demonstrate how a carburettor works and also what makes a chimney draw up smoke. If you want to have a go, you'll need a cup of water and a drinking straw and a pair of scissors to cut the straw. I'll explain what you have to do shortly. Thank you very much, Dave. All that's on the way. If you want to join in with the programme or you'd like to send us an email... Or get in touch. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also Twitter at us, of course, as well. It's at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. Now... Let's start things off with a bit of science news. And the animal kingdom, as we know, is full of species that do their very best to hide from predators by adopting all sorts of clever camouflage to help them blend into their surroundings and not get spotted. Well, now it seems that plants might do something similar. Many plants are very brightly coloured to attract pollinators and to make themselves very obvious. And many of them take on the colour of the chlorophyll pigments that they use to generate energy by the process of photosynthesis. Well, Matthew Kluster from Harvard University in the US and his colleagues have been studying an unusual plant called Monotropsis odorata. And that doesn't have any chlorophyll at all because it gets all the food it needs from the mycorrhiza fungus, tiny fungus that live in the soil and in a really close association with their roots. So it doesn't actually need the leaves in order to make any food? No, it, it doesn't. It's sort of abandoned that planty way of life, the way it's sort of the thing that we really usually associate with plants. It doesn't do that anymore. Wow, so what's in it for the fungus? Well, oh, the fungus gets... It's, it's a very close, it's a sort of symbiotic relationship. They both benefit from it. Um, the fungus will, uh, will, will get some, to some extent, it'll get some of the nutrients from them. But actually, no, the fungus actually gets a protective place to live. That's the, that's the point for the fungus. It's, it's nice and safe inside and, and associated with the roots of these um, plants. And the plants get all, um, get all the nutrients that they need. Um, but having been sort of freed from the constraints of photosynthesis, this particular plant has um, basically options open to it of different colours um, to suit its needs compared to other plants. And as Kluster and the team have discovered, it seems that Monotropsis odorata does, its, does the best job it can of actually hiding from herbivores that might come along and give it a good munching. And um, what they're trying to do mostly is to cover up and protect these purple flowers and stems that they have. And they do that by covering them in brown bracts. And these, it turns out, seem to really resemble dead 
brown leaf litter. And we know this because the team went out and they basically took these bracts and they looked at the colours of um, light that are being reflected back off them and it showed that they were really very similar to the same to the colours that come off leaf litter. So they looked the same. And then they also did some experiments. They rather cleverly went out and took some of the bracts off some plants in the wild. And then over two years they studied um, how much herbivore damage was done to the plants with and without these brown bracts. And then they also they, they found that um, there was 20% less damage in the plants that had this brown co- covering. And um, the ones that had the covering compared to the ones that had them taken off produced much more fruit. And that's a really good indication that having that camouflage is really producing a benefit to those, uh, to those plants. Um, so, you know, that's a real practical thing that they're, they're getting a benefit from. Now, the very strange thing is here um, that these plants don't want to disappear entirely because they are still reliant on animals to come and visit them to disperse their pollen and their seeds. And Clooster and the team saw lots of bumblebees actually coming to the flowers and successfully finding them. And, and um, they think they may have been lured in by a nice smell, by a scent that attracts um, just um, pollinators but not herbivores. But that's an idea that we don't really know about yet and these need looking at in a future study. But uh, it does seem that cunning camouflage is no longer a unique characteristic of animals but plants can do it too it's amazing to think that you can have a plant which doesn't actually need the sun and it gets all its energy from a fungus and puts those resources which it doesn't need otherwise into camouflaging itself incredible dave thanks now a process which is vital for plants and all other living things is called osmosis it's based on something called a partially permeable membrane which lets water through but not salts and other dissolved things so if you put salty water on one side and fresh water on the other water will move from the freshwater side to the salty one. Um, there's lots of processes in living cells um, were driven by this, and it's a reason why soaking lettuce in water will make it swell and get crisper. Now, a Norwegian power company called Statkraft has utilised this effect to build the first power station based on osmosis. The idea is to put seawater on one side of the membrane and fresh water from a lake on the other. Water will then flow through the membrane, increasing the pressure on the seawater side. You can then use this high-pressure water to drive a water turbine and generate electricity. They need about 2,000 square metres of membrane um, to generate about 2 to 4 kilowatts of energy, which is a fairly small power station, but it's a start. Um, There's lots of other challenges involving um, optimising the membrane so they don't get ruined by impurities in the water and um, stopping the fish swimming in and eating their way through the membrane and things. So basically, you get seawater and you mix fresh water with it, and because the fresh water goes across that membrane into the salt water and makes the salt water swell up, that creates a higher pressure there, and that's what drives the turbine. Yeah, then you just run it through a turbine, and you can and you get power out of it. How much? They um, you reckon you need a you need a lot of water to generate a reasonable amount of energy, but they reckon they could generate about ten percent of Norway's energy by osmosis. But Norway is a country with a lot of lakes. It's one of the, lots of these small um, alternative energy things which can generate a few percent here and there. But if you get enough of them, it'll add up to something useful. It sounds fantastic, and I'm really excited when you get these ideas for other um, technologies to develop to, to produce energy. But I think the, the fish thing is really quite important, because it's an issue in power stations anyway, is that when you're bringing in water for cooling, and sort of fish and all sorts come with it, um, there is quite a lot of, um, of mortality and death <laughs> that you don't want, and it's a problem. So that's something to bear in mind. I'm sure it's not something that's prohibitive, but um, something to bear in mind. How do they get around that then, Dave? Well, at the moment, they're basically just putting a net to stop the fish at each end, and they actually have to clean up the fresh water, which is another big problem, because if it's too dirty, then it bungs up the pores in the osmosis membrane. Right, so. OK. And, and the effluent that comes out, the, the slightly less salty salt water, that just goes back in the sea because that's presumably no different than if you have a river discharging into the sea or an estuary or something. Yeah, it's exactly the same as sort of salt water mixed with fresh water, which is what it is. Sounds amazing, though. And and it means you can have hydro, energy derived from water, but you don't need a huge great mountain and and gravity to do it. You can do it using the power of of the the, the chemical difference between salt and fresh water. Yeah, it's just generating a little bit more energy out of from the river, basically. Thank you, Dave. Well, also this week, scientists have discovered a new way to flush out the genes that bugs use to invade and infect our cells. Uh, This is a paper in the journal Science. It's by Jan Curret and his colleagues. Uh, They're based at the Whitehead Institute on the east coast of the US. And they have developed this strategy using a group of cells called KBM7 cells. Now, these are a special cell line which only have one copy of each of the cell's chromosomes in them, unlike the usual two copies. Now, that's critical, and I'll explain why in just a second. But what their strategy involves is they grow these cells in a dish, they then infect them with a virus which goes into the cells and inserts itself inside 
a number of genes randomly throughout the genomes of these cells and in the process inactivates whichever gene it inserts itself into. The virus also contains a short piece of genetic material like a flag or a tag to earmark where in the genetic material it's gone in. Then what they do is they challenge those cells with a pathogen. It could be a fungus, it could be E. coli, it could be another virus. And what they're able to do is to then see which cells remain viable and are not killed by the pathogen. What presumably has happened is that the virus that they infected the cell with in the first instance must have deactivated some of the genes in that cell which are necessary for that pathogen that they're testing to infect and damage the cell. So all they have to do is to look in those cells to see where the virus has gone in and which genes it's turned off. And once they've identified those genes, they can work out what those genes do and therefore how those genes help the pathogen to invade the cell. So, for instance, it might be a gene that makes a chemical on the surface of the cell that helps a virus to get in. And this is a really neat way to show very quickly which genes and which gene products make our cells vulnerable to different pathogens. And if we know what the genes and the gene products are, we can potentially make drugs or molecules that can block those particular molecules, or at least the interactions that pathogens have with those molecules, in order to damage cells. And the reason that the cells have to have just one copy of each of their chromosomes is that this means that there's only one copy of each of the genes in the cell. So if you had two copies of the chromosome, you'd have no chance of that initial virus being able to turn off both copies. Uh, whereas if you have only one copy, there's a good chance that it will turn off a gene and then you know exactly which one is involved. Sounds like good news indeed to speed up our approach to new ways of treating all sorts of diseases. Well, I'm going to take things back to the ocean once more. You might imagine that. No surprise at all. And the peculiar shape of hammerhead sharks, which I have to admit are, I always say this, but it is really one of my most favourite species. They're so strange to look at. And in fact, their morphology, their anatomy, has been a huge biological conundrum that's been puzzling scientists for years and years, um, really wondering why they have these strange shaped heads. You know, they're nothing like anything else in the sea. Well, now American scientists have uncovered some of the secrets of these odd hammer shaped heads and they've shown that having eyes spaced far apart on their wide heads lets hammerhead sharks see much better than more conventionally shaped sharks. And in particular, hammerheads have an enhanced depth perception and that's a really crucial skill for predators to judge how far away prey is before swooping in for the kill. Well, over, year, over the years, there have been fair various ideas put forward about what, uh, why the hammerheads have those extraordinary compressed and laterally expanded heads. It's known as a kephalofoil, which I think is a great word. There's your word for the day. Um, and there's, the possibilities include greater sensitivity to smells or to the weak electrical signals given off by prey animals, um, maybe greater lift and manoeuvrability in the water, um, or it might help them uh, in catching and manipulating prey. But until now, very few studies have actually gone about testing all these various hypotheses for why hammerheads have those strange heads. Well, the research team led by Michelle McComb from Atlantic Florida University have set out to test another idea. And that has it's one that's really sparked a lot of controversy over the years, which is whether or not hammerhead sharks can see better than normal sharks. Now, what they did was they mapped out the 3D visual fields of various shark species, including three hammerheads, the bonnethead, scalloped and winghead hammerhead sharks. And the, what they did was they anaesthetised each of the sharks in turn and then they used an electrode and worked to work out if an electrical signal is generated in the retina when a narrow beam of light is shined on the eye from a various range of angles. And by that way, you can um, build up this sort of three-dimensional field. And uh, what they found was that all of the sharks, um, of, all, of all the sharks, it was the hammerheads that had most overlap in their vision from their front two eyes in front of them. And uh, the sharks with the wider heads, the hammerheads that were even bigger, had even more overlap. And it's that overlap that gives you a greater ability to, to perceive depth and to figure out how far things are away from you. The team also discovered a fantastic thing, which is that all these sharks have extraordinary 360-degree vision in the vertical plane, so they can essentially see right above their heads and also down below them. But one thing hammerheads aren't very good at, and I thought this was rather sweet, was they can't really see what's going on behind them, because as you can imagine, their eyes are kind of facing forwards on the end of these huge heads. And uh, there are reports of prey fish hanging around behind hammerheads, hoping not to be seen. Um, but um, there's a behavioural way that hammerheads seem to overcome this. And what McComb and their colleagues have done is they've looked at videos of sharks swimming and the hammerheads um, basically swing their heads around a lot more. Um, and it seems that that sort of compensates for this compromised vision behind them. Um, but uh, this is really wonderful.
for. But of course, it doesn't it doesn't rule out other things that might be good about having a hammerhead shaped head, hammer shaped head. Um, but it does certainly begin to unveil one of these fantastic secrets of these amazing animals and why they evolved to look so strange. Glad I didn't have to anaesthetise a shark, what some people are doing in the name of science. Thank you, Helen. Now, also in the news this week, uh, we hear often that people can move you by the words that they use. Well, it turns out that that's actually physically true as well. Uh, Brian Jick is a researcher at the University of British Columbia and has published a paper this week showing that actually we respond to the sensation of the breath of a speaker on our skin, which helps to reinforce meaning. He's with us now. Hello, Brian. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Do tell us, what have you been doing? Uh, well, we've just been uh, aiming puffs of air at people, basically, uh, and seeing how that affects their speech perception. So talk us through the experiment. What did you actually do? Well, initially, we thought that we know that there are certain uh, certain kinds of information that we can pick up in our environment that help us to perceive speech. And we haven't had so much insight into how the tactile sense works into this. So in other so, words, we, we know that we're comfortable with the fact that people lip read, for example, and so they help their comprehension of what someone is saying by following the movements of someone's lips. Exactly. But there's an additional dimension to this, which is the, the air coming out of their mouth. Exactly. So, <clears throat> And we aren't particularly fond of the air approach. Uh, it just happens that the air approach is the best way to get at what kinds of information could somebody be conveying to you uh, that you could just sort of passively pick up from your environment. And so, so how did you do this? So we we thought about these little puffs of air that people produce. When you say a sound like pa, if you put your hand in front of your face, if you're an English speaker, you can hear a little, feel a little puff of air on your hand. And if you say ba, you don't really feel a puff of air. So we took little tiny puffs of air and created artificial ones and, and put them on, at different places on people's bodies. And at the same time, we played sounds that they could hear through headphones. And we found that if you play the sound ba to someone, and at the same time, somewhere on the body, they feel a little gentle puff of air that's inaudible to them, they'll experience the sense of having heard pa. Oh, right. So you can completely throw them off the scent and you can make them think they're hearing a different sound because you're pairing a puff of air which they would normally associate with hearing the p sound. And in fact, you played them a d sound. Uh, you're right. So a B will sound like a P, a D will sound like a T, and so on. And this is this is interesting to us, not just because it throws off your perception, but it suggests, suggests something, I think, bigger, which is that we really seem to take all the information around us from whatever sense modality is available, and we incorporate it into, into percepts of the world. Does it matter where on the person's body you give the puff of air when doing this experiment? It, it doesn't seem to matter. In the Nature paper, we uh, we looked at puffs of air on the neck and the hand. And in other studies that we haven't published yet, we looked at the ankle, for example, and we get, uh, we get the same effect anywhere. So in other words, the, the brain is pretty clever in that it's integrating information coming in from all over the place to reinforce the information that would be coming in j just from the spoken language. Exactly. And it, it, it sort of challenges this traditional idea that you see with your eyes and that gets processed by a particular part of your brain and you hear with your ears and that gets processed by another part of your brain. It looks like our brains just perceive things and take everything in. And obviously people who talk on the radio or listen to a podcast, TV programs, they have no problem interpreting what people are saying. So when would the body want to use this additional dimension of comprehension? Well, I think we're... <laughs> The way I view it anyway is we're, we're biological parts of our environment and we, like everything, like the, the plants uh, without chlorophyll, uh, we, we use whatever we've got uh, to, to get by. And in, in our particular case, if we happen to only have one sense modality available to us, we'll get by. If, we, if however, we've got uh, all of our senses and they can pick up information from our environment, We'll use it all, and we'll do it seamlessly. So I guess that puts a whole new spin on the meaning breathing down someone's neck, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much. That's Dr. Brian Chick, who's a researcher at the University of British Columbia, paper in Nature this week explaining how puffs of air can actually distort our perception of what people are saying. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists.
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, me, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. You can also tune in to us live online from anywhere in the world. There's a link to the web stream on the front of our website, nakedscientist.com. And you can also live in the virtual world of Second Life and find us in the Scilands. So hello to everyone of you Second Lifers. Right, that time of the week where we get a bit experimental. Dave, what do you got for us this week? Okay, this week I've got an incredibly simple experiment for you to do at home. All you need is a glass of water and a drinking straw and a pair of scissors. Go on then, what do we have to do? First thing you want to do is cut the drinking straw sort of not quite in half, so maybe into a third and two thirds or something around that much. And I've got two halves of straw. You then put the short half of the straw in the glass of water. You want it quite full, otherwise it's got to blow incredibly hard. And then take a really deep, hold the other straw in your mouth and put it just across the top of the straw in the drinking water and blow as hard as you can. I'm a little bit worried because I often end up getting a bit soaked in your kitchen sides of the studio, Dave. So. <laughs> anyway. I don't know if it's going to be another one of those, but maybe it is. You don't want to point it at anything expensive like all this incredibly expensive shiny new electronic equipment we have in front of us. <laughs> OK, so just to summarise, glass of water or something, straw dipped in end of the straw below the surface of the water and the other end of the straw projecting above the top of the glass so you can see that yeah you put the other bit of the straw in your mouth and blow across the top of the straw that you've got immersed in the water yeah blows you to blow quite hard to get it to work okay and how what's the outcome measure what do you want people to, to, to watch out for see or look for It'll be really obvious. <laughs> right. OK, we'll have a go at Dave's experiment. If you think you uh, have got it working and like to tell us what you're finding, our email address here in the studio, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can, of course, Twitter at us too, and it's at Naked Scientists if you'd like to do that. Helen, I've got a question for you, which is quite appropriate given that you don't actually eat meat. Uh, <laughs> this is a question from Max, who says, what makes steak tough? I've just had quite a tough steak to eat, and I was thinking, why is this thing so tough? And I was wondering, uh, if I was eaten... How tough would I be? That's a great question. And that, you see, I don't actually um, indulge in steak myself, but um, I know many people who like them, especially a nice tender steak. Um, so I've had a bit of a look around to, to understand more about the meat-eating habits of, of you lot. And uh, it seems it's quite an involved answer, actually. There's no single thing that does uh, that determines how tender um, a piece of meat is, and there are various factors involved. Um, and this includes things like the breed of the animal, um, how old it was, um, and... What I found um, really quite interesting was how you treat an animal just up to the point at which it's slaughtered. Um, has an awful lot to do about how um, tender its meat is. And I thought that was really quite surprising. I didn't know anything. I don't know much about these things since I don't eat meat. Because veal calves are, are kept so they don't uh, do too much. I mean, didn't, didn't your family used to keep cows, Dave? Presumably not for eating, for milking. But um, my, my father did grow up on a farm, but yeah, not, I don't think we were into making veal. No. But, uh, um, I mean, I was, I've been having a read around and it seems that uh, how they're transported, um, if they're herded with things like dogs that scare them and things like that, really can affect um, how good meat turns out. And even a sort of a breed of meat that's meant to be very good and very tender, if it's treated badly just before um, slaughter, this can really um, do away with that, that great meat. Um, so that's really something to bear in mind. And a lot of it comes down to collagen, because that's the main tough parts of the meat, are the collagen, um, the connective tissue inside the meat, because meat is a essentially muscle um, and um, and for example as a, an animal gets older it produces more collagen it becomes more interconnected and that makes it tougher so generally older um, creatures uh, older individuals are tougher and, and weight bearing muscles tend to have more collagen in them as well so they tend to be less tender and I've found an interesting measure of tenderness which as well as, <laughs> sounds nice but it isn't really it's called the Warner Bratzler shear force test and that's what um, the Bit scientific the yeah, the it's, the, it's the scientific way of figuring out how tender meat is I mean one thing is to actually give it to people and say is this tender do you like this do you like this which is better but this is the kind of way of making a number out of it and uh, and it's the number of kilograms needed to shear or kind of cut uh, pull apart um, a cubic centimetre of muscle um, and it varies from a tenderloin like really nice steak is about 2.6 approximately and then a really tough cut of steak uh, is more like five five and a half um, so that's how you measure it but um, yeah there are all sorts of factors involved um, and uh, um, you know I think it's in- very interesting indeed like I say, that it's that treatment and the stress levels um, of an animal before it dies that, that, that can determine how tender its meat comes out. Thank you, Helen. Uh, Chris Cataneo has got in touch on Twitter uh, and she's put forward two questions. Uh, one, I think, probably is coming Dave's way, but this one, first of all, for me, says, um, why does cutting our hair make it stronger? Actually, this is a myth. There is no evidence that cutting hair, shaving, doing anything like that actually makes hair grow more or 
uh, adjust its strength or its length. Um, hair goes through three, three phases in, in its lifetime, a hair follicle. It has an anagen phase when it actually grows and makes hair, and depending upon what sort of hair on where on the body surface you're looking, that phase lasts different lengths of time. Uh, on the head, for example, it lasts for several years, whereas on the face it might last for weeks, and an eyelash, for example, only grows for about three weeks before it goes into the next phase, which is called the catagen phase, when the hair falls out, and that's when the hair follicle sort of stops for a while. Obviously, you can imagine if your eyelashes grew for three weeks, that would be... Uh fairly disadvantageous uh, for, for three years it'd be disadvantageous because you'd be looking out through under these curtains wouldn't you uh, so it's a good job that doesn't happen um, but then the third phase is something called the thelogam phase when the, when the follicle rests before it restarts itself again and the only thing to think about is people often say well when a person dies their hair carries on growing after they die for example or uh, when you cut the hair it comes back far bushier and both of those things are down to in the case of someone dying it's because the, sh- the skin dries and shrinks a bit around the hair coming out through the hair, the skin surface and this makes the hair look artificially a lot longer and secondly when you cut hair instead of it having this tapered thin end it's got a very abrupt cut off sharp end so the hair looks thicker when it comes back so it's a sort of uh, illusion it's not really any fatter now this one for you dave um chris says how do solar panels turn sunlight into electricity Okay, a solar panel is basically a one-way valve for electricity. So you have an air, you have two bits of semiconductor. One which is um, it's called p-type, and the other type, n-type. In the middle, you have a gap which you don't have many electrons in, and it also acts as a valve, so it only electricity through one way. Um, light can hit that, this um, bit in the middle where there's no light, where there's no electrons, which takes, doesn't conduct electricity, and knock an electron off an atom, and therefore you create an extra electron, and you create what's called a hole, so a place where there's no electrons um, in there. Those then move across um, to either side of this one-way valve, so essentially one's on one side of the valve, and the other's on the other side of the valve. The only way they can get back to each other is by going all the way around the circuit, and do it by doing work and powering whatever you're using to, from, to power your calculator or your um, phone charge or whatever so yeah basically light hits hits a bit um electron and a hole get either side of a one-way valve and they have they have to go all the way around the circuit um so the tiny little uh solar panels you get on a a calculator or whatever are they the same technology essentially as the ones you find on a roof of a house or you know a really big scale photovoltaic cells is it the same thing going on broadly the same technology yeah um some of the pretty much all of the solar cells you see at the moment are basically exactly that set of silicon ones the same as you get in um in a calculator they are developing newer versions which use different kinds of chemistries and different kinds of semiconductors um and so yes eventually they're, they're going to be different but pretty much all of them are just silicon one-way valves Cool. Thank, thank you, Dave. Uh, Jerry's on the phone. Hello, Jerry. Oh, hi. What's your question? Actually, it's very interesting. Uh, we had some friends around on Friday, and they uh, brought us um, for dinner. They brought us a bottle of pink carver, which we never had before. Anyway, we, we had the meal and we drank it, and we, we didn't finish it because they were driving home. And we said, oh, well, I don't know, we'd better stop, stop a bit of uh, paper down to stop. No, they said, hang on a sec. Try putting a spoon in a teaspoon. What do you mean? So we did. We put a teaspoon in. They, they assured us it would be all right the following day and after that. Anyway, on Saturday, the day after, we thought we'd try it with some lunch. And the half bottle, empty bottle, um, was there with the teaspoon. And we took the teaspoon out, poured a, uh, a glass of it, and it fizzed up like nothing on earth. And I thought, goodness me, how did that happen? Why didn't the bubbles escape with all that space around the teaspoon? So your view is that if you put a teaspoon in the neck of a bottle of champagne, it will keep it fizzy for longer. That's your view? Well, it seems, certainly seems to have happened with us overnight uh, on Friday. Yeah, sure. Why, why should it happen? Why didn't the bubbles get away and say, hooray, we're free? What, are the, what is the consensus of everyone here at The Naked Scientist? Uh, Helen, have you tried this trick? I haven't tried it, though, although I have been known to have a bit of champagne in my time. Okay. I think I don't I ever have well any... It, I don't have any left next day to do it with, I think. That's the problem. Do you think... Uh, have you tried it? I certainly haven't tried it. I can't say I like champagne. <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's no evidence, unfortunately, Jerry, that this actually works. Um, the the bottom line is the reason there is fizz in the champagne is because the champagne uh, was turned into wine, in other words, had alcohol in it because there was yeast, which converted sugars in the original grape juice into alcohol because when you ferment something, you grow it in the, with yeast in the absence of air, the yeast produces alcohol as a byproduct of, of survival. And... Yep. It also produces CO2 as that other byproduct. And yeah. if you put a cork in the bottle and pressurise the liquid, the CO2 can't escape and therefore it dissolves in the liquid and you get a fizzy beverage. And to increase 
the fizziness of champagne, what they will sometimes do is to add additional sugar after the primary fermentation, and that encourages it to, f- to make even more fizz. Um, if you take the cork off of a, a bottle of champagne or a fizzy drink, you, you take the cap off, what you're now doing is exposing the gas which is dissolved in the liquid to atmospheric pressure, and this means that there's now no pressure to hold the gas in solution, and it will gently and progressively come out. And when you pour a, ga- a glass of fizzy drink, you'll see the bubbles arising from one point or a number of points on the glass, and they stream upwards. That's because there are irregularities or or rough points on the surface of the glass Um, but there's no reason why a spoon in the neck of the bottle should make any difference because the bottle is open to the air and therefore the air above the liquid is at atmospheric pressure and therefore the gas will move from an area of high concentration in the liquid to the lower concentration lower pressure in the air and and therefore i think this is a myth and Mm -hmm. you'd have to do a proper experiment and take several bottles of champagne and open them and put no spoon in them and simultaneously do the same thing with bottles of champagne with spoons in the neck and then and have some objective measure of how much fizziness was in there and i think you'd find it wouldn't make a difference would you agree dave yeah, I've found actually on the internet someone who has done this experiment and the spoon makes no difference at all. I think the important thing is putting it in the fridge, um, which uh, makes the liquid a lot colder and the colder liquid is, the more gas it can hold. Yeah, so, cool. And I think it will just lose its fears a lot slower than you'd expect when it's in the fridge, especially if it's in a very clean bottle. There you go, myth busted. Sorry about that, Jerry. Such a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind, but drink the champagne up. I mean, that's the key thing, isn't it? Oh, sure, we will. We'll <laughs> Oh, thanks very much for You're that. You're welcome. I uh, got an email from Bill Cool, who says, I uh, just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. Uh, he's listening to us uh, over in America. And also Lisa Timmus, who's in Massachusetts, and she says, I listen to all your podcasts, and I've been all the way back through your archives too. Gosh, you must be mad. If you want to listen to back editions of The Naked Scientist, you can get them from uh, our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Dave, just before we go into our next item, I have a very quick question for you from Davy Stump, who says, what would a substance at absolute zero look like? Um, I see no particular reason why it would look any different to one at any other temperature. Um, if it's staying at absolute zero, especially if you can look at it and you're shining light on it, then it's not going to be absorbing very much energy because as soon as you shine some light on it and if any light was absorbed, then it's going to get hotter than absolute zero. Um, so it's probably going to be, so if it's staying at absolute zero, it's probably transparent. But I don't think, I've seen very, very cold substances down to sort of minus 270 odd and they look pretty much like other substances. Wouldn't the sh- the pure act of looking at them, visualising them, wouldn't that put some energy in so it couldn't be at absolute zero anyway? Yes, but essentially. So if you're shining light on them, you're going to give them energy and you're going to heat them up, um, unless they're completely transparent. So the only thing you could look at and keep it at absolute zero would be a transparent thing. But that's not to say that all things <laughs> at absolute zero are transparent. Not that you can ever get there. Great question, though. Thank you very much for that one. If you'd like to ask us a question on The Naked Scientist, it's Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell here with this week's programme. The email address, chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can Twitter too, at Naked Scientist. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and now it's time to find out the latest from the world of technology. And this week, Mira's been finding out how the internet is transforming the town of Swindon. Yes, it's time to find out what's been happening in the world of technology. So once again, I've come down to the BBC Television Centre in London to meet our resident techie, Chris Vallant. Hello, Chris. Hi, Mira. Now, Chris, what is this I hear about Swindon, the entire town of Swindon, becoming Wi-Fi? Well, there have been a lot of efforts to create municipal Wi-Fi. I mean, Swindon certainly isn't the first place to do that. What I think is interesting about Swindon is they've got a very ambitious project, a partnership with the local council and private enterprise. The aim is that the whole of Swindon Borough Council, 186,000 citizens, will uh, have access to free Wi-Fi by April of next year. Now, they're going to be offering a range of services, so the free service is going to be very limited, very basic, and then there will be options to pay for services that are more like the regular kind of broadband service you might have at the moment at home. So it's not as straightforward as the case of if you just live in Swindon, you're going to have great free Wi-Fi then? No, I, th- I think you're not going to have the same kind of experience you'd have with a paid package. Um, the people behind the scheme, the council and, and uh, Digital City UK Limited, their aim is that everybody in Swindon, whether in the borough of Swindon, whether they live in a small village outlying the town or in the town itself, will be able to get online. 
Um, and what's interesting is the way they're doing this as well. I mean, they're starting in uh, one village and then they're rolling it out. So it's not going to start like most schemes in the city centre where most users are. Um, it's also going to be Wi-Fi based, which again is interesting. It's not going to be a lot of digging up the roads. It's mostly going to be run from Wi-Fi boxes that operate in a mesh that connect with each other. So again, that's a different approach from approaches that have been tried before. Well, to get a little more information about this, I paid a visit to Swindon and I spoke with Ricky Hunt, who is the entrepreneur behind the scheme. This is a great opportunity to talk to people, um, sending them information about simple level when schools are going to be closed because of bad weather, updates on swine flu or, or, or traffic or, or whatever. So yes, we have a, a landing portal which will provide local information. There is a problem acknowledged in the Digital Britain report with access in uh, outlying villages, in rural communities. Uh, the main reason those places don't have Wi-Fi at the moment is it's not economically viable. Why does it make sense for you to supply Wi-Fi to these places? If you look at it individually, it doesn't. But when you look at the whole, if we can put it together where uh, we've got enough commercial services and fill in the, the, some of the, the outline areas later so it's quicker and a lot cheaper than cable, and that's part of the key as well. In fact, we're standing under one of the key bits of infrastructure for your project, a lamppost. What's their role in the whole scheme? Our transmitters will sit on lampposts. It gives us access to power, and of course lampposts are where people are. So uh, we'll use the lampposts as the power, um, and they, it'll create a mesh over the whole of the town. One of the big costs with, with installing broadband is the simple infrastructure. is digging up streets, laying cables... Yeah. How does your system get around that problem? The boxes all connect to each other and at some point they'll be linked to an exchange, maybe in two or three units, um, a WiMAX backbone, and then they will just all talk to each other. An important part of your business plan is once you've built the wireless network here in Swindon, the extra services you can sell. Tell me about some of your plans there. Well, we have a, a range of products. We have energy monitoring, for example, and we all know these products have been around for a while, but nobody's been able to utilise them properly because they haven't got connectivity. Um, we'll be able to monitor uh, electricity at the beginning, but actually uh, remotely intervene. So if I've left a light on at home, I can actually see it on my phone and switch it off. Um, and, and that's quite unique. We will, by the, certainly hmm, February, we'll have gas and water as well being able to be monitored and intervened with. We'll have Medicare systems where we can monitor people at home. So, you know, when we talk about the hospitals trying to keep people in their home rather than in hospital, we have products, products that will facilitate that. CCTV, you know, we can monitor CCTV. You can have a look at it on your computer when you're away. Or we can have it live monitored for you by a local company. The idea of people having individual numbers of the growth of sort of domestic CCTV, I mean, some people will be listening to that and thinking, great. Others will be listening to it and, and starting to think about George Orwell. Obviously, data and data security is very important. It's very secure. It's, it's, um, it uses the latest technology. It's very, very secure. As secure as anything that exists, probably a little bit more because technology's moved on at the point we come into the market. So we're very comfortable with the security. That, that's not an issue. And, and there's always people who don't want to access uh, this sort of technology. And that's fine. They don't have to. So that was Ricky Hunt talking about Swindon's plans. Now, of all of the towns in the UK, why Swindon? I mean, nothing against Swindon, but why Swindon above everything else? Ricky Hunt has uh, very strong connections with the town. He's really been the driving force behind it. So it's purely the fact that he's, he's primarily based there. I think what's interesting is for them it's more than about just having the infrastructure in place. It's about the extra services they can offer to people as well. So it's, it's very much a, a commercial model. It's also a service that uh, Ricky told me he, he feels could work in more places than just Swindon. He's quite keen, if Swindon's a success, to take the idea out to other towns and cities across the UK. So we'll see if that happens. So wireless internet all across a town is something that we may be seeing more and more in the future. And it seems to be a good idea, especially for people in inaccessible areas and places that don't have broadband at the moment. That was our technology correspondent, Chris Valance, talking to our own Mira St Thillingham. Okay, Helen. Right, 
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. It's our science phone-in extravaganza this week. We're answering your science questions. Chris at The Naked Scientist is the email address, or you can Twitter at us too, at Naked Scientist. We're also running our usual kitchen science experiment. Dave, could you give us an update on what you need people to do this week? Get a drinking straw, um, cut it in half, so one half is a bit shorter, so third and two-thirds. Um, put the short end into a glass of water, so maybe about an inch of it sticking out the top of the water, or even less than that, it's easier the shorter it is. Then get the other half, blow through it, put the end so it's blowing just across the top of the straw which is in the water, and blow as hard as you can, and don't point at anything expensive. <laughs> That's the key point. Nothing expensive and not me either, please. Um, I've had a question here on email from Andrew who wants to know how does lead absorb radiation like X-rays and gamma rays? Well, the, the reason is that um, lead is a good choice because it's a very dense substance because dense substances can get in the way of the radiation and soak it up. And the denser something is that means the more atoms, and in the case of things like X-rays and gamma rays, the more electrons there are to potentially interact with that ray as it goes through and stop it. So if you look at the density of lead, lead weighs something like 11 grams per centimetre cubed. Iron, on the other hand, is only 7. So in other words, you can get lots and lots of shielding with lead for much less space than if you use, say, iron or concrete, which doesn't have the same density, although both could. Uh, soak up x-rays in the same way because what happens is that the x-ray which is effectively a light wave when it goes through the material it's interacting with the cloud of electrons around each of the atoms and what can happen is the x-ray when it does have this opportunity to interact or the gamma ray with the electrons is it can add some energy to an electron and this can make the electron depart from the nucleus that it was originally orbiting and this can make an iron for example and the, the electron can then move away or be captured elsewhere and what that does is basically turn the energy in the X-ray or the gamma ray into the energy inside the material. So it's basically a safe form of energy. So it's, it's effectively neutralising the effect of the radiation. Lead is a good choice, as I say, because it's very, very dense. So you can pack in more protection into a smaller area than you would otherwise. But they're very, very heavy to wear. I've worn lead aprons when doing X-rays medically in hospital. And uh, it really is very, very heavy. So I wouldn't recommend it if you can avoid it. The other effect is because lead has got a very, very um, positively charged nucleus, the electrons around the middle of it can absorb a huge amount of energy before they get kicked off the atom. So because an electron which is very near to the centre of the nucleus can absorb a much more energetic gamma ray or x-ray than something like hydrogen because the hydrogen atom, the electron, can just hit a small kick and then it can't absorb any more energy. I have a question, uh, Helen, from you from Etienne de Villiers, who says... I'm uh, a big fan of your programmes, and uh, I'm wondering, why do whales beach themselves? That's a great question, and in fact, um, unfortunately, part of the answer is we actually don't know. Um, only around half of the whale strandings that get found in the world have um, an answer that we can definitely attri um, attribute to it. And there are all sorts of things we know can cause um, whales to uh, to crash into a beach and beach themselves, and, and usually, quite often, unfortunately, ends up with them dying. Um, and these include things like diseases, um, trauma if they've been hit by a boat or something like that, um, or an anomaly in magnetic fields we we know a little about um how whales use uh, magnetic fields to navigate by and if though if there's an anomaly that doesn't seem to make sense to them um or perhaps a change to a coastline they might get confused and that may lead them into an area that they can't escape from and eventually end up on a beach so there are some times we know what's going on but there's lots of times when we don't um things like um underwater noise is implicated and uh, things like military sonar though actually there's very little evidence that is what's going on i mean we need lots more studies to really understand if that is a problem because whales you know can be very sensitive to underwater noise we, we know that they can hear each other so if humans are being very noisy that can certainly is likely to confuse them and um and end up having these big problems but um i think you you do have to also remember that these um, mass strandings when when lots and lots of whales and dolphins end up on a beach has been going on for an awfully long time and since aristotle um they um, people have been seeing these these mass strandings so clearly a long time before we were making a very big impact on the oceans whales were doing this there must be a natural element to it as well and there are reports of increased mass strandings at the moment um, that we're seeing it happening more often and, and that may well be true but there are also more people looking for them there are more of us at the coast so there may be that might be one reason and we should really be taking all these things into account when we're considering what's causing it and whether we should be trying to do something to to stop it Thank you, Helen. Let's hope we do find out how to stop it because obviously the numbers can be really quite large when this happens. Now, Dave, we got this question actually from someone called Dave in London. 
hello everyone, uh, Naked Scientists. Uh, my name's Dave and I'm from London. I would like to know what would happen to the Earth if a meteor hit the moon and destroyed it, like the weather and the tides and gravity and stuff like what how would that be affected if the moon was destroyed okay there's two questions there if a meteor hit the moon and blew it into thousands and thousands of pieces what would happen to the earth um the short question is you'd have a nuclear winter you'd put huge amounts of rock into the atmosphere it would block out the sun it would actually reach us would it um if it hit if it hard enough to destroy it into millions of pieces then there'd be enough energy that a significant portion of the moon would land on our atmosphere you get huge amounts of dust in the atmosphere all plants would die because some people have suggested that one way to mitigate against global warming is in fact to create a cloud of dust by mining the moon and ejecting material into orbit uh, in the same orbit as the moon therefore creating this sort of buffer against solar influx and this would cool down the earth a bit yes uh, if you completely destroyed the moon it'd be like that cool down a lot a billion (laughs) times over um and it would the earth would be a very nasty place the other question is if you just got the moon and took it away um and disappeared it somehow what would happen um you'd immediately lose the tides because those are due to the moon's gravity um and also on a longer term there'd be some subtle effects um the axis of the earth is actually stabilized by the moon orbiting it um the moon's got huge amounts of angular momentum so perturbations don't have a very large effect on it and it tends to stabilize the earth's um direction of its axis um over millions of years so if you then wait millions of years the earth's axis would rotate and that could have all sorts of complex effects to the weather and the um and life in general, and also not having tides could have all sorts of strange effects to the, on weather because you're not mixing the oceans and the oceans move far more energy about the Earth than the atmospheres do. Thank you, Dave. Uh, in a second, we'll be solving our kitchen... Well, providing you with the answer to our kitchen science this week, How you, what happens if you put some straws in some water and blow across the top. But first, James in Cambridge got in touch with an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. He said, why is it that sometimes when you hard-boil an egg, the shell membrane will peel off easily whereas at other times it's really hard to peel the egg. You can't actually separate the shell away from the inside of the egg. Well, I have one theory on this, which is that when you hard-boil the egg, what you do is to create a very strong... uh, or you you create a potential vacuum because the proteins in the egg white denature and they denature and form a solid which is in close apposition to the inside of the shell and they squeeze out any air that was in there and so what you've basically got is the egg equivalent of the thing that holds your tax disc to your car windscreen you've got a potential space there which at the moment if you have the eggshell uh, not separated is being held squeezed onto the egg on both sides by atmosphere and so you've basically got to create a bit of a vacuum before you can separate the two and i think that's probably why it's so hard in some cases to to peel it it's also possible that, especially if you've got an old egg, um, the white tends to shrink a bit. So you get a nice big air sac in the top. When you put that into a um, hot water, that air is going to expand. And it might squidge its way around in between the membrane and the shell. And that might be making it easier to peel the two apart. Right, OK, it's time for me to get drenched. I'm feeling it could be our kitchen science this week. Another tight chance for Dave to pull a stunt on me. So... What is it we're doing again? Remind me. Okay. Remind us, Dave. OK, so we cut a straw into sort of slightly off half, so we've got one end shorter than the other. So if you want to take the short end... Here we go. We've got the short bit of the straw, right. And, and I put, put that in the... In the into glass the, into water. The, into the water. You want okay. to put it quite a bit lower. I'll just top lower. up that water a bit so okay. it's not too hard work. Uh-huh. Right. And then take the other straw, put it in your mouth, and then blow across the top of the short and one. And not aim it at this expensive equipment in front of me. Uh, <laughs> OK, let's have a go. I'm making funny <laughs> noise, like noise, but I'm not sure if that's quite what you're saying. Let me harder. try again. Let me try again. Put that bit lower. Blow okay. Oh, wow. That's good. <laughs> okay, so I'm a bit drenched. <laughs> Actually, I think you might be a bit wetter than I am. Well, let me just explain what was happening. Yes. So as, as Helen was blowing across the top of the straw... Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but what I can see is water actually coming out of the straw that you've got going down into the liquid, out of the neck of that straw, and firing away in a stream away from and in the airstream that Helen was creating with the, the straw she had in her mouth. So it, it wasn't water coming off the surface of the liquid, it's actually water being drawn up the straw. In That's, very small, part, very yeah. fine mist. And then it gets turned into a mist. This is actually yeah. exactly how an airbrush works. Oh. So what happens is when air is moving very, very quickly, it tends to have a lower pressure. This is called Bernoulli's principle. Um, It's also the reason why 
if you've got a chimney and it's the wind's blowing really hot, hard over the top of the chimney, you find it draws a lot better. That's because the fast-moving air at the top of the house is at lower pressure than the air at the bottom, so the air gets pushed up the chimney, and so you get a really nice draw and your house doesn't fill with smoke. So the yet lower pressure at the top of the straw, the water gets pushed up by the high-pressure air on its surface. The water gets pushed up the straw until it gets to the surface. Then it gets up out of the top of the surface and gets broken up by this really fast-moving air, and you get this spray. If you'd have put paint in there, it would make a lovely way of make, doing paint. It's Carburettors, you mentioned. Yeah, it? it's also how carburettors work. Um, this is where on older engines and small engines these days, you mix the fuel with the air. Um, they basically just work when you put, hit the throttle. That just changes the amount of air flowing into the engine. And you have a little nozzle um, with, with fuel in it. Um, the faster the air goes, the more pre- the lower the pressure is. So fuel gets sucked up that and turned into a spray and mix really well with air, so it'll burn well. Because you get a, a low pressure in the inlet manifold because, of course, the pistons are pulling contents in, so they're lowering the pressure. Yeah. So basically it's the same as, as the low pressure Helen was creating by blowing across the top of that straw. And also the air is moving really fast in order to get into the inlet, right. inlet, uh, inlet manifold. So you get so a little spray of petrol coming up. spray of petrol, which is nicely mixed, and so it will burn nicely in the engine. And uh, tattoos a bit different, or just airbrushes this confined to? Um, I, I guess they make <laughs> tattoos with an airbrush, but then you have to push the <laughs> stuff under the skin with a, um, with a needle. But, yeah. Neat experiment. Thank you very much, Dave. And, of course, details of that will be on the website. Yep, I can make that live now nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science to see how you do that experiment and the scientific basis behind it. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. We've got a question for you here, Chris, and it comes from Byron in Pennsylvania in the US and he says he loves the show, thank you very much, and uh, he wants to know why isn't beetroot dye broken down by digestion? Um, Well, in some people it is, but in some people it isn't. The chemical that's in beetroot that makes them red and makes some people wee red and also pass red faeces, which is what can happen if you eat a lot of beetroot, it's a chemical called betacyanin, and it's actually an antioxidant that the beetroot makes. Uh, It can actually be used as a colour change indicator too, but it doesn't necessarily break down in the intestine of all people. The things that seem to make it break down more are acidity, and so if you have very strong stomach acid, then it breaks down more. If you have weaker stomach acid, then more can get through into the small intestine. And there, pancreatic juice is alkaline, so that can encourage it to pass through into the colon, which is actually where it's absorbed. People have done experiments on patients who have had things called ileostomies, which is where you take the ileum, the terminal bowel, and you bring it to the surface of the skin, and you take the contents away into a bag, for example. If you feed them beta-cyanins in beetroot, for example, they don't ever get beeturia. In other words, the red dye getting into their urine. That shows that the absorption must take place in the large intestine. Other things that seem to affect the absorption is a chemical called oxalate, oxalic acid, which you get from rhubarb and rhubarb leaves. And that actually gets broken down by bacteria in the small intestine and in the large bowel. So it's possible that there's a combined effect of some people have a certain genetic makeup that makes them break this stuff down more than others because they have more acidity. It's also possible that they have certain bacteria living in the intestine that break the stuff down more than others, and so that affects whether or not you see it appearing in the bloodstream. But in people who do get this, what seems to happen is that the pigment comes through the wall of the bowel, doesn't get broken down, goes round in the bloodstream, and then it gets filtered out by the kidneys and goes into urine and makes urine go red. But what's really interesting is that on its way to the kidneys, of course, it has to go through the blood. And I was rooting around on the internet and I found this wonderful paper. It was published in the Christmas BMJ uh, 2005. It's by two doctors, Julia Handysides and Stuart Handysides, who work in uh, Essex. And what they did was to... Well, they've written this paper. I'll read you this because it's hilarious. Um, One Sunday evening in 2004, our 11-year-old son went to bed after various delaying tactics, arguments about friends staying up later, forgetting to brush teeth, forgetting to come down for a drink of water and so on. But shortly afterwards, the dining room door opens and in he comes, cupping a bleeding nose in one hand and gripping the bridge of his nose with the other. We led him to the kitchen sink and helped him to clean up and stem the bleeding. But oddly, the blood on his hands would not wash off and it also looked brighter than usual. The poor child was interrogated. Is this some kind of ruse or lark to stay up later? The bleeding stopped and his hands, although stained pink, were now clean and dry. Upstairs, we found crimson stains on the bathroom carpet, which proved impossible to shift and remain there over one year later. 
Our garden's harvest of beetroot was very good in 2004, and we had eaten some the day before the nosebleed. It dawned on us that on its way to staining urine, the pigment in beetroot might also stain blood as well. So that means potentially all of your internal organs are getting stained bright red by beetroot, and if you bleed, the stuff can come out and stain your skin. I mean, that's just amazing, don't you think? That's extraordinary. I'm a big fan of beetroot. Um, I think they taste wonderful. But I actually, I think I might be one of those people who... um that doesn't happen to you, but let's not go into that. I've never had that, actually. I've never had beach. Have you had beach urea, Dave? I have, quite regularly, yes. OK, maybe you've got those intestinal bacteria that um, encourage you not to break it down. It's certainly may- maybe that, that type of bug. Uh, anyway, Joel Hillman says, Helen, how does temperature determine sex in some species? That's a great question. It's a, it's a wonderful um, phenomenon that happens in uh, lots of reptiles and it also happens in some fish as well that instead of having genes or chromosomes, in fact, that determine whether or not um, an embryo turns into a male or a female, it depends on temperature. So, for example, alligators, um, they will lay their eggs um, in a nest and if it's incubated um, at around 30 degrees, um, they will all turn into females. If they're incubated at 33 degrees, they will all turn into males. And if you've got temperature in between those two, you get a varying um, mixture of males and females at diff- in a different ratio. So clearly the environment is telling it whether or not to turn into male or female. And it's a wonderful question to, uh, to think about how this happens. And also, why does it happen? Why should, you, why should an animal benefit from letting the environment determine whether or not its offspring turns into male or female? Well, some of the answer to that question was actually brought about by a study in Nature last year. And it was by Daniel Warner and Rick Shine from the University of Sydney. And they were working with these wonderful creatures called Jackie Dragon Lizards from Australia. And they look wonderful and they sound wonderful. And they have this um, temperature sex determination. Um, And the good thing about them is that they've got quite short lifespans because the big problem with studying this um, type of um, sex determination in things like crocodiles and turtles, which also do this, is they live an awfully long time to really get to grips with what's going on. They're not really an ideal um, subject, but um, these little lizards only live for about three or four years and they're they're wonderful and what they've shown in fact is they looked um, at what was going on and found that a key event um, in the sex determination of these lizards is the conversion of testosterone into estradiol which is a relation of estrogen and it's brought about by an enzyme called aromatase and uh, that happens at very low temperatures and it tells a developing dragon to become a female. And what they did was they actually overrode that um, that enzyme and they were able to block it and artificially turn males um, uh, into females, even if they were being incubated at a female temperature. And um, what they showed was that over a number of breeding seasons, they found that males actually had more babies if they were hatched at a normal temperature than if they were hatched at a female temperature. Um, so really what they're showing, and they've done this the other way around as well, that shows that if you're, if you're forced to be the wrong sex, you're not as good at having babies. So that's sort of showing us a little bit about why this evolved in the first place and it gives us an idea of, of how it happens as well. Um, but just it doesn't really explain in nature why this should be. But there has to be a benefit. It has evolved. We see it in many different species. There have to be reasons why um, at different temperatures males do better um, than females because that's what we see in all these different animals. And it actually leads us to think about maybe an ongoing problem that we might have to face of climate change. That if these animals are being determined, their sex is being determined by temperature, if that temperature is going to go up, especially for things like fish in the oceans, which we know may increase in temperature, it could start causing all sorts of trouble. So we will see. But it's all rather wonderful and fascinating. Certainly is. Thank you, Helen. Well, here's something totally out of this world, quite literally. Sean Thompson says, What distance separates two gamma ray bursts that are 13 billion light years from Earth each, but in opposite directions? So he says, Recently, a gamma ray burst was detected in the sky from a star 13 billion light years away. We talked about it on the programme, actually. Uh, Neil Tamvir from Leicester joined us to discuss it. Um, Would it be possible for detection of a gamma ray burst from a star 13 billion light years away in the exact opposite direction with respect to our own galaxy occur? And if this occurred, would the two effectively be 26 billion light years away, which is presumably bigger than the size of the universe, isn't it? The concept of distance gets quite difficult when you start thinking on the scale of the universe, apart from anything else, because Einstein worked out all the stuff about relativity, which says that depending on how fast you're moving, then um, the distances can get compressed and things. The first thing is because the distant gamma ray bursters are moving at very different speed to us, um, then the space in between is going to get um, distorted. And if we were both moving at the same speed, then they'd be about 30 light years away. So that's the first difference. The other thing is, um, if you want to think about 
where they are now rather than where they are when the light was emitted, then something about 13 billion light years away is actually 46 billion light years away because it's, it's been moving away for the last 13 billion years. So it's much further away now than it was. So in some senses, the two gamma ray bursts now are over 90 billion light years apart. Um, and the size of the universe is just to do with how far away we can see. So there's lots more universe as far as we know, which is beyond that distance. It's just how far we can see. So it's quite easy for things to be beyond each other's um, observable universe. But I think that the point of confusion here is if you, we know that the age of the universe is about 13.7 billion years, isn't it? So that would suggest even if you're at the centre of the universe, if it was expanding in this sort of symmetrical bulge, uh, you should be able to see for 13.7 billion years in any direction, shouldn't you? I, think, I guess that's what people are, are thinking. Yes, everyone should be able to see light which was emitted 13.7 billion light years away that's been heading towards them all over that time. So why would you end up with the potential light wave that heard or looked like it was 90 billion light years away? Um, well, the, the light hasn't travelled 90 billion light years. The light has travelled 13 billion light years. But the object which emitted it has moved another 60, 70 billion, billion light years off in the opposite direction. So where it is now isn't where it was when it emitted the light. Uh, I have a quick question from Joe DeLuco. Uh, Dave, this is probably one for you. And he says, why bother putting the Hubble Space Telescope out in orbit? Why don't they just mount a big telescope on the International Space Station? The simple question, is, the simple answer is that there's people on it. And they're doing things. And whenever they, pu- if you push, if if, they, if you if you push off the side of the space station to walk, move down it, um, the space station is going to move a bit. And those tiny movements, even though people are very small compared to the site to the weight of the space station, are more than enough to ruin your pictures. So if you want to make a good telescope, you want it to be as far away from anything else. Um, you don't actually really want it in low Earth orbit, although the Hubble Space Telescope is, because then you get the Earth, which is producing lots of heat, which can affect things. Um, but, and you really don't want any vibrations, so you want it away from any people, anything, anything that's moving around. So they tend to build their own satellites, which are independent of the space station. Thank you, Dave. Uh, for, uh, an, a question from Sharon Wade, who says, can the medieval warm period and little ice age be used to explain or be explained in terms of current climate models what happened? Um, we think that was something called the Maunder Minimum, and it produced a miniature ice age in the Middle Ages, probably about 400 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, Italy was affected, and one of the reasons why we think that some of the one, most wonderful violins ever made came out of that period is because the trees grew more slowly and the wood was denser in that period. We think... Um, that may explain Stradivarius's success. Um, it's down to, in that instance, we think, uh, a difference in solar activity. So people actually explain the Maunder Minimum and that, and that uh, period of cooling and warming in the Middle Ages because of differential solar activity, rather than the present problem, which is, we think, rising levels of CO2. And it's now time for our question of the week. And once again, we welcome Diana O'Carroll back into the studio. Hello, Diana. Hello. Yes, well, this week I did actually manage to sprain my ankle. And if my foot had been any more purple, which is possible, there would have been a trip down to the x-ray department. My name's Steve from Little Walden. And my question is, how much radiation are you exposed to during a medical x-ray? How does that compare to the dosage levels radiation workers are allowed to receive? So how much zapping do these medical scans do? Hi, I'm Phil Clark from the Particle Physics Group in Edinburgh University. And first of all, when you're discussing radiation doses, it often gets quite complex due to the different ways to measure radiation. And there's often an abundance of different units, like REMS, GRAYS, Sieverts, Röntgens, Becquerels, Curies, and so on. So that can confuse things somewhat. So the important unit of measurement is what's known as a GRAY, and that's a unit of absorbed dose. And it corresponds to one joule of energy absorbed by a kilogram of material. Now, different types of radiation, like alpha, beta, and gamma decays, result in different biological effects. So what you do is you have to take the gray number and multiply it by what's often called a Q factor. And an example would be for X-rays and electrons, the Q value would be 1. So if you multiply those two together, you get what's known as a dose equivalent. And the scientific measurement for that is a sievert. And one sievert is actually quite a large value, so you typically measure it in millisieverts, so thousands of sieverts. Now, a typical sort of standard chest X-ray produces about 0.1 millisievert, and the doses that are recommended for people working at CERN are the maximum dose. It's about six millisieverts, and if you're a radiation worker, it's got to 20, or if you're an airline staff member, the usual amount is about five millisieverts. So the amount of radiation you get from an X-ray is actually quite small. That's the physics of X-ray doses, but what about the different types of X-ray scans? My name's Stuart Yates and I'm a radiation protection advisor working at Edinburgh Hospital. 
Well, you get a very wide range of different x-rays giving different amounts of radiation dose, but taking a typical example chest x-ray is very common that lots of people might be referred to by their GP or hospital doctor. And a typical chest x-ray gives you about the same amount of radiation dose as you'd get in three or four days from natural sources of radiation in the environment and also natural radioactivity in food that we eat. For example, Brazil nuts contain radium and so they're slightly radioactive and so Typically, a chest x-ray is about the same as eating three or four bags of Brazil nuts in terms of radiation dose. CT scans do give you more radiation dose, so you're equivalent perhaps to a few years of natural radiation. But then the benefit is also that much greater because you'll get, the doctors will get that much more information. And so one of the key things in, in all x-rays is that you will only get that x-ray if the benefit outweighs the risk because radiation comes naturally from cosmic rays from outer space, we're actually quite well protected at ground level from that radiation because of absorption in the atmosphere. But when we fly, we're less protected because we're higher up in the atmosphere. And so typically you'd get the same amount of radiation dose from a chest X-ray as you would from, say, a return flight to southern Europe. So a simple chest X-ray will give you 0.1 millisieverts. That's a 60th of the dose limit for someone at CERN. However, a CT scan can give you up to 20 millisieverts of radiation, which is four years' worth of background radiation. But that's unless you live in some parts of Cornwall where it's two years' worth because the rocks there emit lots of lovely radioactive radon. I'd like to propose at this stage a brand new way of monitoring and measuring and quantifying radiation, the BBNE scale. What does Bags that sound of for? Brazil nut equivalents. <laughs> Well, also on our forum, we heard from Technomind. He commented that he had a professor who used to work with radioactivity and continually um, wore a monitoring film badge, a dosometer, um, and said that the only time it showed significant dosage was after he'd been on an international flight. Indeed. And from radioactive sources, next week we'll be talking about some mutant fruit. Hi, my name is Gary Staub, and my question is, how do farmers plant seedless fruit crops? Thanks so much. How do seedless fruit make baby seedless fruit? Help us to answer this question of the week by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing on the forum with thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll, for this week's question of the week. And as Diana says, join us on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, where you can participate and put forward your thoughts. You can also get question of the week as a podcast in its own right from nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW or from iTunes. Thanks, Diana. Now, next week on The Naked Scientist, we'll be looking at a worsening problem. Uh, up to one in ten people might be affected in some parts of the world, and that's with the problem of hepatitis C, a virus that hasn't been with us for very long, maybe a few thousand years at most. Where did it come from? What does it do? Why is it such a scourge? And what can modern medicine do about it? Join us to find out. And if you have any questions on the subject of hepatitis C, then do send them in this week. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. That's all we've got time for. Thank you very much to our wonderful production team, Mira Synthalingham, Dave Ansell, Helen Scales, Diana O'Carroll, and I'm Chris Smith. Take care and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 